Chapter 6, The Burns Cult and Bonnie Prince Charlieism, etc. The Cultivation of the Cults. Uh, the Cultivation of Cults. On the 25th of January, all over Scotland, or wherever Scotsmen are gathered together in any part of the world, there are innumerable jamborees to celebrate the birthday of Robert Burns, the national poet. Sometimes these gatherings are worthy of the occasion. More often they are a little more than whiskey and haggis binges, with little, if any, relation to poetry. At the opposite end of the extreme, they may take the form of inexpressibly boring and repetitive lectures, known as giving the immortal memory in drafty town halls, uncheered even by the infusion of a cup of tea. All over Scotland, too, the visitor will see and hear evidences of the cult of Bonnie Prince Charlieism. Inaccurate and highly sugared portraits of the prince abound in most cities and are even used upon advertisement hoardings to promote the sale of a liqueur, the recipe of which he is alleged to have brought with him from France to Scotland. His effigy in stone, beside that of John Knox, of all improbable people to associate with him, adorns the facade of a chain store chemist's in Prince's Street, Edinburgh, along with other national heroes. No concert of popular Scottish music is considered complete without a rendering of Will You No Come Back Again or some other Jacobite song or air. Lest it be thought that the heading to this chapter and these two opening paragraphs are the prelude to a prolonged sneer at some of the more innocuous of my fellow countrymen's sentimental indulgences, let me state at once that that is not my intention. There is a great deal to be said for annually celebrating the birthday of Scotland's unchallengeably greatest poet. There is also every reason why genuinely patriotic Scots should remember the last man to lead, and how nearly successfully, the Scottish troops of a genuinely independent Scottish army. No, the trouble with the Burns cult, when it degenerates into an absurdity which makes us the laughing stock of our southern neighbors, and with the neo-Jacobite Bonnie Prince Charlieism, when it becomes rancid with false sentiment, is that both the originals of these cults were, in their own way, admirable men. If Burns had merely been a rustic versifier of local Scottish talent, and if Prince Charles Edward Stuart had been no more than the gew-gaw tartan figure which the advertisement posters make him out to have been, one might smile at the cults that have grown up around them in Scotland, one would not, as one so often is, be embarrassed by them or object to them. The Burns Cult Robert Burns, born of humble Irishire farming stock, is not only Scotland's national poet, but one of the first writers of lyric verse that the British Isles have produced. He is something more. He is a 
poet of European standing whose words and sentiments have crossed the frontiers of all civilized languages. To Scotsmen, however, he speaks primarily for and to themselves. His democratic, in the better sense of that much misused word, sentiments, his sturdy independence, his effortless yet forceful and often melodious use of the national tongue of Scotland, his unashamed, amorous, yet romantic virility, and his personality make a strong and direct appeal to all Scots. Highland, as well as lowland, he was indeed a most delightful man, if I were given the chance to spend a day in the company of one great Scotsman out of the past. I do not know whether I would choose Burns or Walter Scott, probably Burns. All this makes Scotsmen feel that in a peculiar fashion they own Robert Burns in a way which few English people, save poets or professional writers, feel that they own Shakespeare. Burns's varied and generous nature has been interpreted and used by his fellow countrymen in practically every cause, save perhaps teetotalism. He has, of course, been enlisted in the popular front of man's equality with all other men. Even the Soviet ex-premier at the time of writing these words has just been quoted in all the press of Britain as repeating Burns's lines, A man's a man for all that. The nationalists, naturally enough, have claimed him as their own special poet. The traditionalists perhaps even conservatives in politics, have seized hold of his Jacobite proclivities to say that at heart he was a supporter of king and country. The extreme left has taken his Jacobism at the time of the French Revolution as an indication that today he would be a communist. In fact, whatever views any Scotsman holds save possibly a detestation of strong drink and an inclination towards uh, celibacy, it is possible to claim Robert Burns's posthumous support for them. And so it comes about that nearly every sodality in Scotland on the 25th of January can put forward a speaker who, in proposing the immortal memory can use Burns as a peg on which to hang his own and his society's views about Scotland and the world. It also comes about that wherever two or three Scotsmen are gathered together anywhere in the world, towards the end of January, they can, if they feel so inclined, get together for a national unbend on the excuse of celebrating the national poet's birthday. All this is a trifle ridiculous, but is it worthy of all the contempt which is poured upon it annually by these Scottish intellectuals? When all is said and done, if we are going to have a national get-together day, the birthday of a poet is not a bad date to choose. As a man who makes his living by his pen, I have always been pleased and rather proud that the largest public monument to any Scotsman, to any man, 
in the capital of Scotland should have been put up to a novelist, Walter Scott, one may or may not approve of the preposterous architecture of this monument in Prince's Street, but one does approve of the sentiment that erected it. One may not approve of the forms many Burns Day celebrations take, but it is something to be grateful for that it is a poet's birthday which is being celebrated and not a politician's. Our Burns Day binges may often cause the Saxon south of the border some innocent merriment, but it would be no bad thing if they celebrated Shakespeare's birthday in an equally popular way. At least we could join in. Shakespeare is the poet of England, but we share his language with him and with the English. The one class of people in Scotland today who perhaps have a genuine grievance about the Burns Day celebrations are the living Scottish poets, and there are some very good ones too. Poetry, even the mere printing and publication of poetry, needs financial support today more than it ever did. Despite this undoubted reputation, some of the modern Scottish poets have made for themselves. This is as true in Scotland as anywhere else. If only one-tenth of the money annually spent in whiskey, haggises, and the hire of rooms to celebrate the birthday of a great but dead poet were to be given to the foundation of a magazine which could regularly display the latish, latest Scottish verse, it would make all the difference to the living inheritors of the Burns tradition. Excuse me. Bonnie Prince Charlieism. Bonnie Prince Charlieism, or sentimental neo-Jacobitism, is less defensible than is the Burns cult. It is purely sentimental. That is to say that it is an emotion that has no relation to fact in the present-day world. At least the speakers who pronounce or belch the words of Robert Burns at the annual celebrations of his birthday are emitting words that have some relation to life today. Alas, the lugubrious and occasionally melodious mourners over the failure of Scotland's last national rising, the insurrection of 1745, have no claims to be talking or singing about anything that is alive today. True Jacobitism in Scotland is, of course, long dead. The emotion behind it the desire of the Highlanders to re-establish their ancient position in Scotland, has not so much died as receded into the impossible. The desire of Scotland to return to her status as an independent kingdom may be put forward by some eager young nationalists and by increasingly elderly and, be it admitted, increasingly ineffective political theorists, but a venture such as the 45 is, practically speaking, as remote as Bannockburn. The habit of sentimentalizing over Prince Charles's immortally remembered dash to regain the crowns of Scotland and England for his family and, incidentally, to revoke the Union, his victories over the southern troops with his Highland followers, his ill-advised retreat back into the mountains, his defeat at Culloden and his fight amongst the heather when no Highlander would accept 
the then enormous bribe of 30,000 pounds for betraying him, began as far back as the late 18th century. It began when young Edinburgh ladies and elderly Edinburgh clergymen could, without what the Hanoverian government would have regarded as treasonable intent, compose and sing poems and songs about the vanquished prince. They could do this without being accused of practical treason, not so much because the prince was vanished as because the men whom he led, the Highlanders, were now utterly crushed or, in thousands, sent overseas. Excuse me. No, I'm not uh, The final absurdity of this form of sentimentality was reached when Queen Victoria, herself the granddaughter of the Hanoverian George III, proclaimed herself a Jacobite. Queen Victoria's devotion to Scotland was genuine and warm-hearted. She did much in, as far as Scotland was concerned, a rather grim century, to restore the national self-esteem. But calling herself a Jacobite was really a bit thick. Though she may not have meant it to do so, it rubbed in the last element of fatuity into the cult. In case it should seem that I am allowing myself to be unduly irritated by the meaningless sentimentality of this cult, let me draw an analogy which every Irish and perhaps many English readers will appreciate. Suppose that the Easter Rising of 1916 in Dublin had failed in its ultimate effect. Suppose that Ireland had, after this brief glorious flash, subsided into a torpid acceptance of British rule, and suppose that years, decades afterwards, the drawing rooms of Dublin were tinkling to the sounds of songs about the bravery of the boys of sixteen. Suppose, finally, that in an Ireland in which the British still ruled, Advertisement hoardings proclaimed the virtues of various drinks and other goods linked with the heroes of Easter in 1916. Would not every decent Irish stomach be turned? That is all that the popular form of Bonnie Prince Charlieism is in Scotland today. The rising which Charles Edward Stuart led had as its proclaimed aim the restoration of the House of Stuart and the character of the young Stuart Prince had much to do with the devotion to his own personal cause. The real fact behind the rising was that it was Celtic Scotland's last stand by the force of arms in its own independence. It failed, and its failure undoubtedly produced some poignant song, balladry, and legend. The tradition of that inheritance is now debauched, debauched, and worthless. This is not to say that anyone really interested in Scotland's past and in her last bid by force of arms for independence 
cannot follow the footsteps of the prince in the western highlands and inspect his memorials with genuine emotion, but that is a very different thing from a Jacobite concert in the tartan lounge of a modern Scottish hotel. Other cults. The heading of this chapter is the Burns cult, Bonnie Prince, Charlieism, etc. There are not many etceteras in the line of cults that are not related to either Burns or Bonnie Prince, Charlieism. St. Andrew's Day, the anniversary of our patron saint, is much regarded abroad amongst exiled Scots, but frankly it is of little significance within Scotland itself. Despite the Scottish branch of the BBC's valiant efforts to think up something fresh for each St. Andrew's Day, few people in Scotland pay attention to it. It occupies about the same position in most people's minds in the Northern Kingdom as does St. George's Day in England. There are the historically genuine and much-enjoyed border common ridings. These take place annually each summer when the various border towns appoint riders to inspect the boundaries of their respective parishes. Something in the same kind, of course, happens in various parts of England. In the Scottish border towns, however, there is a real strong tradition based, of course, upon the ancient necessity of preserving the demarcation line between England and Scotland. This line has long ago been decided upon and defined. Nevertheless, something of the old border watchfulness bursts out each summer in these common ridings. There is much junketing, which sometimes lasts for days. While on the subject of the border line between the two countries, I cannot resist pointing out an absurd anomaly. The county town of that extremely Scottish shire of Berwick ought, of course, to be the one-time Scottish town of Berwick, owing to the fact that this beautiful and historic town has passed from one nation to the other and back again. It has, as a result of some centuries-old pact, officially settled down in England. The border line runs three miles to the north of it. The result is that, though it is in character and in the surrounding land of the Shire which takes its name from it, Scottish, it is in law not allowed to be so. It is under the English legal system. It has a mayor instead of a provost, and so on. After the union of the crowns, but before the union of parliaments, it was in description considered a kind of no-man's land. Treaties used to refer to the kingdoms of England and Scotland and His Majesty's good town of Berwick-upon-Tweed. This form of words continued even after the Union of 1707. It is said that it was used in the declaration of war against Russia at the time of the Crimea, but was dropped at the signing of peace. The official result has been then that this little Scottish-English town has on paper, and for just about a hundred years, been continuing to wage an unequal struggle first with the mighty empire of the Tsars, and subsequently with the Soviets.
the cult, if it can be described as such, of the celebration of New Year's Day is distinctly on decline, on the decline within Scotland. The reason for its existence in such force at one time was the universal desire of Northwestern man to hold a midwinter festival. Unfortunately, the reformers had clamped down on Christmas, which they considered to be a papist relic, to such effect that, be it admitted with shame, this Christian feast had, save amongst Catholics and Episcopalians, almost been driven out of Scotland up to a time well within living memory. Anyone whose recollection goes back to before the First World War can recall a time when all, yes, literally all, the shops in any large town such as Edinburgh or Glasgow were open on Christmas Day. If it did not fall on a Sunday, the same applied to all big businesses and offices which were not linked with England. But something had to be done to relieve men's spirits in the depths of winter. This something was done, and with considerable gusto and style on New Year's Day. Crowds would assemble just before midnight at some central place in any town where the chimes of a clock announcing the passing of the old year and the birth of the new one could generally be heard. At the significant moment, all present produced at least one bottle of whiskey and something little short of a northern Saturnalia commenced. This was followed by those still capable of walking by the ceremony of first footing. A dark-haired man bearing the present of a dark gift, sometimes only a lump of coal, would call upon his acquaintances. If his was the first foot to cross the threshold after midnight, it was supposed to bring good luck upon the house for the rest of the year. Junketing with whiskey at the price of three or even two-sixths a bottle continued till dawn. When day began, it found empty streets, closed shops, and even closed public houses, in which not even bona fide travelers could be served. But people were prepared for this. Every non-teetotal house was filled with the national spirit of Scotland, and as soon as the citizens could begin to stir again, not only a hair of the dog which had bit them, but whole handfuls would be applied. No lady of gentle culture would venture forth on New Year's Eve in any big city. Even on New Year's Day itself, she had to go. if she had to go out, she would travel by cab, making careful arrangements beforehand that the cabbie should be guaranteed to be sober. <clears throat> New Year's Day is still celebrated in Scotland, but to nothing like this extent. The shops still close on the day itself, and there are still rather formal junketings at midnight at such places as the Tron Kirk in Edinburgh. Two influences, however, have mitigated in abolishing the old and on the whole unsavory Saturnalia. One is, of course, the price of whiskey. The other is the entry of Christmas into public as well as religious life in Scotland. More than anything else, the radio brought this latter effect about when people sitting at home by their own firesides in Scotland heard not only England but the rest of Europe celebrating the birthday of Christ 
they felt it impossible to withhold in this one little country, the knuckle-end of Great Britain. Today, in the intervening stages between the passing of the New Year Festival in Scotland and the incoming of Christmas, people are rather getting the best of both worlds. Some shops and businesses close on both Christmas and New Year's Day. Some families manage to have reunions on both days. And when Christmas and Boxing Day, and consequently New Year's Day, fall about the middle of the week, one gets the impression that as far as business is concerned, much of Scotland is enjoying what, with the intervening Sunday, something like an eight- or nine-day midwinter holiday. The cult of the tartan, in itself no bad thing, has already been partially dealt with, though some Scots have entered into this cult with pedantry, as well as over-enthusiasm. It is a cult mainly for export. We sell tartan, along with that curious local sweet Edinburgh rock, to our summer visitors. The cult of the kilt is naturally related to tartan cult, and has been fully described and defended in these pages. A lamentable result of it, however, has been the way young women and girls have recently been encouraged to wear it. It is a masculine and martial garment, and looks ridiculous and unsightly on the female body. There are other interesting cults of purely local or regional origins, such as the Viking Upheli A festival of, in Shetland, or the setting of a lighted candle in the croft window on the island of Barra on Christmas Eve. This is designed to show hospitality to the Holy Family, should it be passing that night. Other Celtic countries have this practice also, but only in these outer islands is it preserved in Scotland. The better side of the Burns cult. Without question, however, the Burns cult is, in Scotland, the most lively, persistent, and the one most likely to last the longest. Having begun this chapter on it, I feel I should, in fairness, close by mentioning it and some of the better elements connected with it. The Scot, whether highland or lowland, whether gay and easy in manner or dour and inhibited, is, at heart, a romantic creature with a taste for poetry, if only he dare let himself admit it. Robert Burns, as the national poet, lets him admit it. The result is something that I omitted to mention in my earlier paragraphs, but which I can provide a fitting conclusion to this section of this essay. Oh, but which can provide a fitting conclusion to this section of this essay. The really astonishing and really admirable thing about the Burns cult is the fact that it has made large n numbers of the most unlikely Scotsmen learn by heart large passages of poetry. Nearly every Englishman can quote a line or two of the more celebrated tabs from Shakespeare, but very few could do much more. Most educated Scots can do considerably more with their national poet. In nearly every gathering of Scots folk, you will find people who can reel off line after line from Burns suitable to most occasions. There is one long poem, the celebrated Tam O'Shanter, which takes anything from ten minutes to quarter of an hour to speak aloud. I have continually been astonished by the number of ordinary men, not in the least connected with letters or poetry, who have been able to produce this poem faultlessly from memory. It would be a good thing indeed if this capacity for appreciating and learning at such length the poetry of Robert Burns could open other doors, too, in the Scottish mind. 
It would be a good thing if the Scot could apply himself with the same diligence to the acquisition of some of the enormous legacy of English poetry and the smaller legacy of Scottish poetry other than by Robert Burns. Finally, it would be an excellent thing if he could be induced to take some practical interest in the by no means negligible body of Scottish poetry being produced today. But one can't have everything. The fact remains that the Scots knowledge and love of the poetry of Robert Burns is remarkable. For that element in the character of his, this paradoxical creature, we should at least be grateful. <laughs>